0: Ah uh, yeah, welcome in, welcome back to another episode of the Format Podcast. We definitely have some good stuff to talk about today. But before I give you the rundown, let's knock out the particulars. First and foremost, if you haven't already, make sure you uh click that subscribe button in the lower right corner of your screen so that uh, you definitely uh, get the new videos. Um, make sure that you click that bell so you get alerted whenever we post new content. And make sure you head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whichever one it is, and uh, make sure you give us that five-star review, rate and review, rate and review, rate and review. Um, You give us that five-star, the more of those we get, it really helps. We move up the rankings, more people find out about us. We can keep doing this great podcast for you, all right? Thank you so much for that. Uh, You can find me in a lot of places, sharing my thoughts mostly on the NFL, NBA, and college football. Sometimes I switch it up, talk a little boxing, maybe a little MMA, soccer, hockey, whatever it might be that catches my interest at that moment. But more n- normally, it's uh, NFL, college football, and NBA, all right? I'm on Twitter, at Bruce F.A. Hope. That's at Bruce F.A. Hope. I'm on Instagram, at The Format Podcast. That's at The Format Podcast. And you can email the show, Podcast at outlook.com. You can tell me you love the show. You could tell me you hate the show. You could tell me you agree with me or tell me I'm an idiot. Just tell me something because it lets me know you're listening. And I definitely appreciate that. Um, you can also suggest topics or segments for the show that you might want to see or hear. Um, also, I'll be introducing a new mailbag segment where I'll answer listener viewer questions. All right. So you can send me your questions on Twitter and IG. If you have a question, just give me those and use the hashtag mailbag. If you email, just write mailbag in the subject line of your question. I'll do my best to get to those and uh, talk about them on the show. All right. So here's the rundown for today's show. I know you've been waiting for that. All right. Um, the question is on the NFL front: What's wrong with Lamar Jackson against the best, the biggest, and best competition? All right. Who's the best quarterback wide receiver duo in the National Football League? In college football. Notre Dame hosts the biggest game of the season and the biggest home game for the Irish in the last 15 years. The Pac-12 is back, and we take a quick look at two other big games this weekend. Finally, in the NBA, players are set to lose money. The 2020 NBA season is set to start before Christmas, and Isaiah Thomas, the legend, may have lost his damn mind. All that and more, so sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 79 of the format. game of the uh, NFL weekend for week eight Um, the Ravens and the Steelers played and of course it was your typical Ravens Steelers affair physical smash mouth type football you know the type of football that we used to see all the time but don't see nearly as much anymore but um, the Steelers remained undefeated and uh, beat the Ravens at Baltimore 28-24 and Good game overall. Baltimore played really well, ran for, uh, I think, like 265 rushing yards as a team. Um, But Lamar Jackson had four turnovers in the game. He literally gave the game away. So basically, what that does is lend to the question what's wrong with Lamar Jackson against top competition? Now, Lamar Jackson is 24 and 5 as a starter in the regular season, but he's 0 2 in the playoffs. Now, I get the playoff part. That's the highest stage. And even some of the all-time greats have bad playoff records. It just is what it is. And there's a lot more to winning in the playoffs than just one player, I guess, right? Quarterback or not, but with the game being as quarterback-centric as it is today and all the rules kind of being skewed towards protecting the quarterback and boosting offensive production, there's definitely a problem when you have a quarterback who has elite talent and has shown elite ability, like, oh, maybe a unanimous most valuable player winner, can't get it done in the postseason. But again, I get it. He's young. He's really he's only in his third year in the league. So maybe the postseason stuff will come, right? But for me right now, that's not the issue. The issue is more, why does he falter so much against the better teams? And the answer seems obvious, right? Against the better teams, the competition is higher. You're facing better defenses, better personnel, et cetera. But it shouldn't be this bad, right? For instance, last season, Lamar Jackson led the league in touchdown passes with 36. 36 touchdown passes for a guy who's known as being run first, right? Okay. Now, a lot of that was to tight ends down the seam, down the middle of the floor, and they had relatively easy throws down the middle of the field. And a lot of that came from the misdirection and the dominance of the run game that made defenses stack the box, right? Greg Roman does a tremendous job in designing the run game for the Baltimore Ravens, doing a lot of the things that you saw when he was offensive coordinated with Jim Harbaugh in San Francisco and having Colin Kaepernick as his quarterback, right? Now, Don't get me wrong, the Ravens still run the football, right? There's no question about that. Matter of fact, this year, they have the best rushing offense in the league at just under 179 rushing yards per game and five and a half yards per carry. That hasn't gone anywhere. But Lamar Jackson, last year's unanimous MVP, who, as I mentioned, led the league in touchdown passes with 36, seems to have taken a step back in the passing game. And that's weird because now the Ravens are the second worst team in the league through the air. And I can't figure out what's going on there. Teams are, I guess they're trying to force the Ravens into more defined passing situations and force Lamar to throw more outside the numbers instead of him getting a lot of those easy easy looks right down the middle of the field like he had last season. And as a result, you're seeing him have more trouble. Now, I don't know if this is coaching. I don't know if it's his natural deficiencies, again, this is only his second full year as a starter and only his third year in the league. So a lot of times they say, you know, it's into the third year that the light bulb really clicks for a young quarterback and they're able to, you know, really effectively get into the NFL passing game. So we'll, we'll see what's happening here. But if you look at it, he's only completing 60% of his throws, which in this era is not good. Through seven games, he's thrown four interceptions, all right? And and that's not terrible, okay? Except two of those interceptions came last week against the undefeated Steelers, including his first career pick six. Not an ideal time to throw your first career pick six and throw multiple interceptions. He also lost two fumbles in that game. So let's look at this. You're in a game that you can win. At one point, the Ravens, I believe, led like 17-7. You turn the football over four times. It doesn't matter if it's Pop Warner, high school, college, or the pros. You turn the football over four times. That's generally a recipe to lose, all right? That's just what it is. If he doesn't turn it over, let's be frank here, the Ravens win that game, plain and simple. Now, we're starting to see a guy who's putting up huge numbers against bad and decent teams, but doesn't play to his talent against the elite teams. And for me, that's problematic. It's just not a good look, okay? um, On the other side of that game, who thought the Steelers would be good this season? I mean, who thought they would be this good coming into this season? They're undefeated. They're on top of one of the best divisions in football. They're on top of their conference. They have a ferocious pass rush, and they seem to be playing well in all facets of the game. And on top of that, somehow their scouting department did it again and managed to draft another dynamic wide receiver. They had Antonio Brown, who's no longer there. He's now in uh, Tampa Bay with Tom Brady. That's a different story. But they drafted Juju Smith-Schuster, who ended up becoming a star playing alongside him. They had Juju Smith-Schuster, who's now the guy, the number one receiver. They draft what looks to be a star in Chase Claypool out of Notre Dame. And, uh, well, you know that scouting team for the receivers, they did it again. New England needs to maybe steal that guy. I don't know. Anyway, Mike Tomlin is doing a great job and he's got to be in competition for the coach of the year award. Coming off a tough year last season where his squad was supposed to be coming into this season third in the division. They were supposed to be behind Baltimore and Cleveland, but he's uh, he's doing what he do. He's doing what he does. So he's not only in a position where he's leading the team uh, really well, but he's got them undefeated on top of the conference and leading the division. Can't beat that. This is a team that you need to watch out for. And with New England looking like they're pretty much done, the Steelers will probably get the bye and host the playoffs all the way through. And that could mean tough sledding for the entire rest of the conference, even Pat Mahomes and the defending champs. But... You know, still plenty of time left in the season. We're only about halfway through. So we'll see. Meanwhile, in the NFC, the Bucks squeaked out a win Monday night against the Giants, who they play really hard. So you got to give them credit for that, even though there's no moral victories in sports. They play really hard, but they just don't have the talent or the firepower to compete and win these games. But the Bucks, they're great on both sides of the ball. And of course, they have the GOAT, Tom Brady who, by the way, is looking a lot better than he did last year. What a difference a year makes, right? He's completing 66% of his passes. He's got 20 touchdowns halfway through and only four interceptions. So he's got the Bucs looking like the class of the NFC. Um, The Bucks and the Seattle Seahawks, if you ask me, they've got to be on a collision course for the NFC title game, barring injury. I mean, yeah. Thank you, guys. Yep, go Hawks. Russell Wilson? Russell Wilson? Is that you? Anyway, um, speaking of Russell Wilson, is Russell Wilson to DK Metcalf the best quarterback-wide receiver combo in the NFL right now? I mean, let's think about this. What are the other candidates? Is it Pat Mahomes to Cheetah, Tyreek Hill? Is it Tom Brady to AB? Well, not yet, but will it, will they be on that list? But DK Metcalf, who a lot of people thought was a bust last year, is looking absolutely elite. He's on pace for almost 1,400 receiving yards, 14 touchdowns, and averages almost 19 yards per reception. He is an absolute freak and a nuclear weapon for Russell Wilson. So finally, um, let's just talk real quick about uh, week nine in the NFL. There's three games that I'm probably going to be paying attention to. The first is, Seattle Seahawks versus the Buffalo Bills. So you have two elite one-two punches offensively against each other here. You have Russell Wilson to DK Metcalf, like we just talked about, versus Josh Allen to Stephon Diggs, the Minnesota Vikings transplant. All right. So you have two quarterbacks who can really throw it. you got two quarterbacks who are very mobile. And you have two big-time number one receivers. So that should be pretty interesting to see how those defenses match up against that. The Seahawks are going to have to continue to do what they've done all season, and that is score. Their defense can't stop me and 10 of my friends, so Russell Wilson is going to have to continue to be Superman for them. All right, the second game to watch is going to be the Baltimore Ravens versus the Indianapolis Colts. Now, the big question is, how does Lamar Jackson and company bounce back from the loss against the Steelers last week against a surprisingly great defense in the Colts. The Colts have the number one defense in the league in a couple of different categories and they're really playing well. Obviously, they've got a veteran quarterback in Phillip Rivers who he's not lighting the world on fire, but he can can still light individual games on fire. And of course, they have uh, that great O-line and they can run it a little bit. So that team is uh, more dangerous than they look. Again, they're playing great defense and where will the Ravens' mindset be coming off that tough home loss to the Steelers? Another loss in the AFC, it, it wouldn't be devastating, but it definitely would kind of mess with the trajectory of the season for the Ravens. So definitely looking forward to seeing how that one plays out. And finally, another major divisional matchup with the New Orleans Saints at the Tampa Bay Bucks. Now, we know that the Saints and the Bucks opened up the season playing against each other and, of course, uh, the Saints won that game. But now the Bucks are playing like one of the best teams in the conference, and Tom Brady is looking as good as he can at 43 years old. Heck, he looks better than a lot of guys 15 years younger than him, if we're being honest. Uh, Drew Brees, well, he just looks old. He's dinking and dunking, and he looks like his arm's literally about to fall off at any given moment. But the Saints are, you know, they're, they're still a very good team. But. Uh, Even still, you can never discount the juice in a divisional matchup. You know where we have to start in this segment. Arguably the biggest college football game of the year is Saturday night in South Bend, Indiana, when number one Clemson heads to number four Notre Dame. And this game could really go a long way towards figuring out who makes the college football playoff at the end of the regular season. This is, you know it's a big game because ESPN College Game Day is already there setting up. And the Irish are chomping at the bit for another chance to show they can play with the quote-unquote big boys of college football, right? Um, We saw last year they went down to Georgia, Sanford Stadium came up short in one of the highest rated games of the year, one of the best games of the year, honestly. But again, it was an opportunity to show that they could match up with, you know, the big time programs and they couldn't get it done. Um, This is probably the biggest game though that Notre Dame has hosted since Pete Carroll, Matt Leinart and company rolled in against Charlie Weiss, Brady Quinn and Jeff Samarja back in 2005 in the infamous Bush push game. Um, This is easily the biggest game of Brian Kelly's tenure as head coach of Notre Dame. And Again, it's a chance to get that, that signature win that they just haven't been able to get against the top teams. Now, if Notre Dame can manage to pull out the win, it'll easily be the biggest win of the Brian Kelly era. And it would far surpass the Notre Dame win at Oklahoma, which eventually led to a national title game appearance where they got absolutely rolled by Alabama. But that's a different story. Um, this Clemson team is still great but not quite the team that easily dispatched the Irish three years ago in the college football playoff 30-3. to uh, Those Tigers had four defensive linemen that went on to play in the NFL. They also had Trevor Lawrence as a freshman. Now, unless you're living under a rock, you know by now that Trevor Lawrence won't be playing in this game Saturday night due to a positive COVID test. Some people might think that's good. Some people might think that's bad. I have mixed feelings on it. Um, obviously the Notre Dame and their defensive staff and their players have been preparing pretty much all summer and all season to play against Trevor Lawrence and, uh, Clemson. But you know, it is what it is. And Clemson doesn't look too worried though. They've got a stud five-star freshman phenom in DJ Yui Ongalele. Hope I said that right. Yui, DJ Yui Ongalele. There we go. And uh, he's at the helm of the offense, which is pretty talented in its own right. And he's talented, obviously, or Clemson wouldn't have recruited him, right? Um, Notre Dame has one of the best defenses in the country. But again, they didn't prepare to play against this guy. They to prepared to play against Trevor Lawrence. So we'll see how that goes. But um, Notre Dame is going to be playing easily the best and most talented team that they've seen all season. And they'll be tested in a lot of ways that they haven't been tested yet. I think the biggest thing for them is going to be trying to contain star uh, Clemson running back Travis ATN. And that's going to be the primary mission Saturday night. If you can do that, if you can really control him on the ground and through the air, because he's becoming a dangerous receiver as well, um, you're going to put more pressure on the shoulders of the freshman quarterback. And, you know, you limit one of his best weapons and put most of it all on him. So that's a good thing, right? Um, What does Notre Dame need to do offensively to try and win this game let's talk about that briefly I think first they really need to try and out physical the Tigers like it sounds cliche but they need to dominate in the trenches both defensively and offensively these are things that you need to do I always say there's certain things that are pretty simple when it comes to football and trying to win run the ball stop the run stop the run run the ball You know, if you've heard that before, stop me. But seriously, if you can do those things, it screams physicality. It allows you to control the the clock. It allows you to control the line of scrimmage. It allows you to stay ahead of the chains, do all of the things that you need to do to try and be successful in a football game. Um, Notre Dame has a top 10 rushing offense in the nation and what most people consider to be the best and most veteran offensive line in the country. They have to be able to impose their will on this game, make their mark, and run for between 150 and 200 yards. Uh, however, that 150 to 200 comes, it doesn't matter to me. They just have to be able to do it, whether it's with Karen Williams, whether it's with freshman phenom Chris Tyree, and whether it's with Ian Book making uh, plays in the on the ground, you know, with his legs when you know passing opportunities aren't there or when he just sees uh, open lanes, right? And he's shown he can do that. He definitely has. Now, speaking of Ian Book, part of what he needs to do as his part is he needs to be able to see open receivers. There's been a lot of games this year, at least once every game, and these are not you know normal mistakes. You're a fifth year senior, you're a three year starter. Um, there's there's been a lot of times when Ian Book has totally missed wide receivers running free for big plays or scores. You can't do that against Clemson and hope to win that game, all right? He needs to be able to see these open receivers and make enough plays in the passing game to be able to keep Clemson honest. I mean, that's just all there is to it. And that's gonna include, for me, taking a few shots to the wide receivers and tight ends. Now, Notre Dame has some some freshman phenoms of their own. Um, at the tight end position, uh, five-star Mike, Michael Meyer is a nightmare matchup. They call this guy Baby Gronk for a reason. And it's not just because he wears number 87. He's a real problem. Uh, Notre Dame offensive coordinator Tommy Reese has got to find a way to create and take advantage of mismatches with Mike Meyer and with Tommy Trumbull, both tight ends who are dangerous, both in the passing game, dangerous as blockers in the run game. All right, he has to utilize those guys. And realistically in the passing game, he probably needs to get each one of those guys six to eight targets. How that comes about, again, I'm not sure, but that's why you're an OC at you know the, 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 the major Division I level. You got to be able to create those situations. Um, Notre Dame's X-Factor offensively, not necessarily offensively, but their X-Factor in the game, period, is another great freshman they have, uh, Chris Tyree, who's a running back slash kick returner. Now, if he can consistently... Uh, provide good field position for Notre Dame, good starting field position. Whether it's uh, you know off of kicks, then they'll be in great shape. And if he can even break a return, then Notre Dame is going to have a great chance of pulling off the upset. Um, but let's be real here, okay? Notre Dame is probably fielding its fastest team ever this season on defense and on offense. It's probably fielding its most athletic team ever this season on defense, offense, special teams. And they are doing their best to be able to match up with the big boys of college football in terms of speed and athleticism across the roster. I get it. Now, they still probably don't have the depth of a Clemson and Alabama and Ohio State, but their first 22 can line up with pretty much anybody, right? Um, So they're doing everything that they have to do on that front. But regardless of any of that, Notre Dame just simply hasn't earned anyone's respect enough over the last handful of years, or maybe even the last couple of decades, for anyone to have any real belief that they win this game with, that, with or without Trevor Lawrence suiting up for Clemson, all right? Now, they should be more competitive, and they could win, but it wouldn't be smart to pick them. And I'm saying that as a guy who's loved Notre Dame football for a long time now. so. It's going to be interesting. Um, Here's the thing, though, that I think is kind of neat about this game. Regardless of who wins, because of Notre Dame's full ACC affiliation this season, the likelihood is that they meet again in the conference championship game next month in Charlotte. But here's another question. If Notre Dame does win, how's it going to be viewed? And what I mean by that is how much of the luster is going to come off of that win without Trevor Lawrence under center for Clemson. I'm really not sure. And it's something I've been given a lot of thought to. Um, It's not like injuries aren't a part of the game of football. And at any given time, a roster can't be damaged by the absence of a key player in a big game, right? But something tells me that the uh, Notre Dame can't win no matter what crowd would find a way to denigrate the win if the Irish do come out on top. Funny though, if Clemson wins, it'll be an indictment of Notre Dame that they just couldn't beat a Clemson team with a backup in at quarterback. Again, I guess those are the same people that are going to be talking that are the same people that screamed all these years, join a conference, join a conference. But now that Notre Dame is playing a full conference schedule, they're denigrating Notre Dame's strength of schedule. So, you know, again, Notre Dame can't win no matter what they do. Guy is always going to make his voice heard. Right. Anyway, got to love how that works. So on another note, some other games to look forward to this weekend are, of course, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. That's number eight, Florida versus number five, Georgia. That's always a smash mouth affair. But it's so funny because of Notre Dame Clemson, nobody is really even talking much about that game this year. It's it's always a good game. It should be good. But, uh, you know, How important is it this year, even though both teams are top 10? uh, Probably not as important as Notre Dame-Clemson. So be it. Um, That's always a huge game with major playoff implications. Uh, The next game that I think is going to be very interesting is going to be BYU, number nine in the country, versus number 21, Boise State. Now, BYU at number nine is really looking at it and saying, hey, if we run the table here, We may just have a chance to uh, sneak in and spoil the party in terms of uh, being a major independent and getting into the college football playoff. Now, I don't see that being very likely, especially with the Pac-12 back, the Big Ten back, and of course, the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12. Although the Big 12 doesn't look like it's going to have a representative in the uh, college football playoff this year, but regardless... We know how the committee is, and it's going to take a miracle for BYU, even at number nine, to get in there. A lot of teams are going to have to do a lot of losing, and they're going to have to go undefeated. But regardless, that game against Boise State should be a real good one. Um, And besides that, the Pac-12 is back this weekend, so that's always cool. Uh, Who knows if a team from the West Coast is going to be able to uh, upset the proverbial apple cart for the college football playoff Sneak in there and kind of mess things up a little bit, huh? This weekend, we start to find. (laughs) So the NBA offseason is moving right along. And the last time we discussed the NBA, we talked about free agent movers and shakers. We talked about new coaches and we talked about how next season might look on these fronts, right? How that's going to affect the Leaf. But something we didn't talk about, Is that the new NBA season, the 2020 21 NBA season, is scheduled to start before Christmas? And it's been reported that some players, um, with the biggest names, notably being LeBron James, didn't want to come back so soon. Obviously, having, you know, being older, having played a long season that just ended, you know, about a month ago, and not having a whole lot of time to let his body rest before getting into the new season. Now, I can understand that, but what the NBA is trying to do is to have a shortened 72-game season so that they can be done with it before the Olympics start in Tokyo next summer. Obviously, the Olympics were supposed to be this summer, and they got canceled due to the uh, worldwide COVID pandemic and you know pushed to the left, right? So the NBA is trying to work around all of that. Make sure they get done before the Olympics start. Obviously, a lot of NBA players play basketball for the United States, et cetera, et cetera. And also probably don't want to fight to have to share viewership on TV, Uh, NBA versus the Olympics. The NBA would probably lose. Okay. That's not even something I had thought about, actually, in terms of the timeline for the league starting. I actually thought the smartest thing to do would be to start it after the new year and have it go into the summer and consistently have the league start either at Christmas or just after the new year. But with the Olympics being in the way, that's definitely an added consideration I hadn't taken into account. So there we go. I guess clearly that's another hangover from this pandemic. Hi, COVID. Anyway, what's interesting apparently is the financial toll on the players because of the revenue shortfall caused by the pandemic last season. Now, obviously, we know that the NBA, like the other leagues, you know, they lost money, which was a huge part of the reason that they pushed so hard to come back and figure out and execute the bubble, which they did a fine job of and, you know, get a playoffs and a championship season and all that. Um, But with with the revenue loss, players are going to have to lose about 18% of their salaries to make up for that shortfall, right? I guess they couldn't possibly think that they weren't going to get hit at some point with that loss, right? Anyway, um, the projected training camp under the new schedule would start December 1st and the start date of the season would be December 22nd, which of course would be just in time for the league to get the big Christmas Day games. And I guess they were determined that they weren't going to lose those and give up on all those eyes and all that ad revenue for the Christmas Day games, which are huge. You know, obviously there are some of the biggest, you know, viewing situations for the NBA on the whole. Now it is what it is. The league has to do everything it can do to recoup the money that it lost. Because as much as we want to say, you know, it's about the fans and it's about competition. It's not. Bottom line is it's a business. Okay. All right. Now let's switch gears here. There's an NBA legend that I'm just so Disappointed in for the things that I've heard recently. (sighs) Isaiah Thomas. And no, not Isaiah Thomas that, you know, was fifth in MVP voting a few years ago, playing for Boston, averaging almost 30 points a game. Not that Isaiah Thomas. We're talking about the legend Isaiah Thomas, leader of the bad boy Detroit Pistons, the second greatest point guard of all time. That Isaiah Thomas. One of the few players who can say he beat Magic. Michael Jordan, and Larry Bird, all either in or close to the peak of their powers. That Isaiah Thomas. His legacy is set. That Isaiah Thomas. But now he's acting as if he's completely lost his mind. (sighs) Okay, so if you're an NBA fan you know that the GOAT debate between Michael Jordan and LeBron James has been going on for a few years now. You've got adherents on both sides of the line, and that's fine. There's a ton of people on both sides of it. And by now, I can admit that fans on both sides of the aisle are pretty much entrenched, right? There's probably very little or nothing that can be done to change most people's opinion on that. If you think LeBron is the GOAT, everything that he does is just adding more ammunition to your argument. If you think Michael Jordan is the GOAT, There's nothing LeBron can do that can ever put him past Michael Jordan. I'm in the, I'm in the latter camp. I don't believe that LeBron can do anything to surpass Michael Jordan. He just can't. Um, I've had that discussion many times. I've told you guys how I feel about that. So I'm not going to get into that today, but at the end of the day, I feel that there is nothing LeBron can do to bypass Michael Jordan. So be it. But we're not talking about me. We're not talking about the average fan We're not talking about barbershop discussions. We're not talking about uh, other sports journalists, any of that, okay? We're talking about an NBA legend here. We're talking about a guy who's been around the game of basketball 50 years or more, who's played against many of the all-timers. We're talking about a guy in Isaiah Thomas who's top 50 all time, who again, is the second best point guard who ever played, who ever lived, right? We're talking about a guy who beat three of the greatest to ever do it either in their primes or just inside or outside of it, okay? We're talking about that guy. Now I get it. You don't have to think that Michael Jordan is the GOAT. You don't have to. Now, I will disagree with you if you don't, but you don't have to, that's fine. This is America. You're entitled to your opinion. But when Zeke co-signed a Twitter post made by Clutch Points NBA, that has a graphic of the players that he named for his Mount Rushmore, I wasn't just shocked. I was disappointed. I expect him to know better. Okay, what am I talking about? Take a look. If you're listening to the podcast right now, the audio version first, make sure you subscribe to the format podcast YouTube channel so you can see this stuff because I got a graphic up here. But if you're listening right now, Um, What I'm doing is I'm showing the graphic of Isaiah Thomas's NBA Mount Rushmore, which consists of LeBron James, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, and Dr. J. What I don't understand here is, all right, Michael Jordan was your rival. You guys had bitter, bitter battles for many years. That's fine. To the point that the two of you don't get along even to this day. I get that. But to not even acknowledge Michael Jordan as one of the four greatest players ever. Again, if you don't say he's the GOAT, you don't say he's the GOAT. But you're telling me he's not top four? That doesn't work for me. The LeBronites love to see Zeke and take shots at Michael Jordan because they use it to try and bolster their argument for LeBron as the GOAT. They say, this is a guy who Michael Jordan played against. This is the guy from his era saying LeBron is the GOAT. So LeBron is the GOAT. But that doesn't work for me, okay? You know why it doesn't work for me, especially in the case of Isaiah Thomas? Because if you go back over time, there's evidence, and you can just YouTube it, of Isaiah calling LeBron the GOAT. There's evidence of Isaiah saying Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the GOAT. There's evidence of Isaiah Thomas saying, yes, there is evidence. It's all on YouTube. Michael Jordan is the GOAT. There's evidence saying that if LeBron and KD played in the 80s, you don't know who the GOAT would be. And now, this is the first time I've heard him mention Bill Russell in that discussion, and he even added Dr. J. I don't get it. So the point here is, how can we take anything this guy says on this topic seriously when he keeps changing stances on it? I guess for him, the GOAT is any all-time great player not named Michael Jordan, right? Again, I got no problem if somebody has a different take on the GOAT debate and doesn't say it's Michael Jordan. So be it. Again, I don't agree, but so be it. But to not even mention Michael Jordan in the top four players of all time is simply blasphemous. Makes no sense to me whatsoever. I expect so much more from a guy who was pretty much a basketball genius, a guy who's been there, done that, and can see the game from a cerebral perspective. So to hear him make statements like this is crazy to me. And I guess it just goes to show how real the competition was back then. You got two all-timers who've been done playing for a long time, and they still hate each other to this level. Again, though, to be so blatantly disingenuous, Isaiah Thomas, that's another thing entirely. So that's it for this episode of the Format Podcast. Thanks so much for uh, listening in. Uh, I'll get back with you next week. Hopefully I have something a little new and a little bit uh, even better in store. Uh, special guest for you, all right? So, um, hey, enjoy your week. Be safe out there. And I'm out. Peace.